So we come to the end of this first full day of practice of the retreat, or not quite the end, but uh, in a sense you've been here for a day, a full day from yesterday evening through today. And I wonder how you were doing. I've had the privilege to speak with a few of you in the small group and uh, be with you in the larger group. And yet I'm always curious how it's going. Even when I hear from you, there's always the possibility of more. It's a curious thing that we're doing here. Perhaps we have kind of got used to it, but perhaps we also notice just how unusual it is what we're engaged in. I kind of wonder how many of you may have tried to explain to your friends in the past what it's like to do a retreat to those who haven't. Have you noticed that it's really quite difficult? Someone sort of described it once like trying to explain the taste of a fruit to someone who's never eaten that fruit. It's like, you can say it's a bit like this and a bit different to that, but that doesn't quite get there. I mean, there's this way in which we'll often say it's quite challenging actually, you know, to be on a retreat. Does anyone have that sense that that's the sort of thing they might say? If you're talking to friends or family or people who are curious. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite difficult actually. And then... You know, they say, so what are you doing? Well, you know, we come on, we have to sit down for a while and they tell us not to do anything. And then we get up and walk around a little bit, don't go anywhere, come back, stand around a bit, don't do much, meals provided regularly. Wow, that sounds like hard work, our friends might respond um, with a slight sort of uh, curious uh, smile. And yet there's something here that is profoundly challenging to us. We're being asked, and this is something the Buddha kind of named in terms of these teachings and practice, we're being asked to go against the stream. We're choosing, in fact, not just being asked because we could say no thanks. We're actually in ourselves choosing at some level to orient ourselves in a way in which we're not just being carried along by the momentum of familiar, habitual, conditioned patternings and ways of being in the world and with ourselves. And this is not an easy thing. Actually, can I just check? Is there enough volume? Can you hear me all right? Good. Great. Thank you. So one thing that's really important to remember is that we're engaging in something that actually most people in the world will never choose to do. I'm not saying that's sort of something to make ourselves think we're better or special because of, but to acknowledge that there are challenges in this situation that most people wouldn't choose to take on. And one of the things that we might notice and certainly is frequently reported and discussed or reflected on in, in conversations and interviews is the, the kind of way we put ourselves under some pressure to perform or to manifest or to somehow do the meditation according to the way we think it should be done, according to what we believe our teachers have told us should be done. And I'm always struck by sometimes the things I hear people tell me that I've apparently told them about what should or shouldn't happen in meditation. 
Um, so one thing I would invite is a, an honoring of what's happening here for yourself and equally for those around you. And that honoring takes the form or can take the expression of a softening of our attitude to ourselves, to our experience, a kind of allowing this to be what it is, to present what it does. This experience, this retreat, this life, this human being, which we are becoming more intimate with. And to be really aware of the tendency we have and very well trained and well established for most of us of kind of trying to assess, trying to evaluate, trying to compare, judging and deciding that it's better than or worse than or or maybe sometimes the same as what has gone before or what we've heard about from others or what we expected or were told would be the experience here. We can't actually know the value of what we're doing here by what happens while we're doing it. We can, of course, have some sense, get some clues, some significant pointers, but really the value of what we're doing here is shown in how it affects our life and how we are with ourselves, with each other, and in our world as human beings. And while we might get a sense of things shifting and moving in ways that we appreciate, we also might sometimes feel like it's going the other way. You know, oh my gosh, you know, my mind is busier or more reactive or more irritable or more sleepy or more confused than when I arrived. To really go gently with any conclusions, I would suggest and encourage you. And yet also we are invited to, to turn towards, to contemplate this, this situation, what it's like to have or to experience what we do experience, this heart, this mind, this body, that we're being invited, that we're being called, that we're being reminded to turn towards again and again in so many ways, in so many moments. And we see the the tendency to move away from this into past, into future, into into fantasy, into memory, into planning or, or reminiscing. And there's something about why that is, that it's important to acknowledge, to contemplate. One of the first books on Dharma practice that I encountered when I was uh, traveling in in India as a young man, that was a book by a European-born but uh, Asian-based monk, Nyanaponika Tara. His book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, really an early classic uh, there's things about it that could be updated but uh, brilliant for the time there was a line in it right at the beginning that stayed with me since I read it all those years, decades ago where he said in fact he said this mind but the translation of the word he's referring to citta that the Buddha spoke of I think is more useful as heart mind so I'm going to translate his translation this heart mind is bound all over 
and yet it can know freedom here and now. And in this, it it spoke to me then and it speaks to me now of both this immediate experience of heart and mind, sense of boundness, of kind of entangledness or encumbrance or limitation or constriction to be bound all over. And at the same time as the truth of that experience that I think we know, that we recognize, there's the sense of possibility that the these teachings and practices point us towards of, of for a freedom, a liberation, a releasing of that bondage. And so we, we kind of contemplate this. We're brought into contact with this. And both aspects of that, this boundness and the, the, the word that's used in the, the, the Buddha's teachings and often well, probably many of you be quite familiar with the word dukkha. It doesn't translate very precisely into a single English word. The common one used is suffering, and it sometimes leads to the idea that, you know, Buddhism's all about suffering, you know, pessimistic, negative sort of view and perspective, which is really untrue. But there's something important about acknowledging what this points to. And the, the translation, it's not a word that most speaks to me here, is from one of my teachers, uh, Ajahn Sachito, uh, who's an English Buddhist monk who, who lives in in Sussex and uh, he, he translates this word as that which is hard to bear it's something the Buddha pointed to and which spiritual teachings have pointed to in so many different ways that which is hard to bear this is part of our experience all of us as human beings that which is hard to bear and the obvious expressions of this are, are things that are painful Things that are frightening, things that are, you know, we experience what hurts in the form of loss, in the form of injury, in the form of illness, the form of being exposed to vulnerability and change. And there's a deeper level to this too, which is the the sense, maybe deep is not the right word, but a perhaps a slightly more subtle aspect of this, which is where we might feel or sense, be in contact with a a quality of dissatisfaction or unfulfilledness or a sense of potential that hasn't yet been met, hasn't yet been met or hasn't yet been tapped into and allowed to manifest. Almost a, like a creative or maybe generative sense of what could be more fulfilling, more free, more fruitful, more beautiful as an expression of a human life than what has so far been possible for us. Which isn't to say that there aren't elements of that already in our lives that we equally acknowledge together with what is difficult. But that sense of what more may be possible for a human being This is the question that moved the Buddha to seek out spiritual teachings, to engage in spiritual practice, to explore a spiritual journey. And that has led people such as ourselves, human beings of all heritages, of all genders, of all inclinations and persuasions through generations, through centuries, through 
millennia in fact, to likewise seek to understand what is possible for a human being. When we see, when we look at what goes on in our hearts and our minds and our lives and in our world which is simply a reflection of all of that multiplied by all of us it's kind of funny well I don't know if that makes sense to you that you know the world and what goes on is simply a reflection of what goes on in us but multiplied amplified in both its painful and grievous elements and equally in its, its beautiful and blessed elements but one of the things we see is that there's a, a kind of a, a pressure often we experience that's in the meditation shows as the attempt to have the right experience, the good experience or the spiritual experience, the sense of what we would wish to be happening. And it's a way in which the you know, the materialistic values of our culture of production and consumption. You know, we're supposed to produce and then consume. That, that's so much of what drives a, a large element of our, our, our society's activity. That this plays itself out also in our attempting in our meditative process to produce an experience which we can then consume, which will fulfill me or make me feel good or maybe just make me feel a little bit better in some way that would release us from the sense of dissatisfaction from the sense of struggle from the sense of somehow not being quite in harmony with or in tune with or at ease with at peace with the truth of our life the experience of our circumstance There's a lovely story that I heard related. Um, a friend and colleague was attending a conference with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And he, he said that His Holiness told the story of visiting a monastery which was famed throughout the, the, the country um, for these remarkable cheeses that they produced. And they, they were sort of like these uh, award-winning cheeses. And they also made this sort of simple fruitcake that they... Um, sold in the local markets to uh, just make some, some funds for the monastery. He said, at every opportunity, he said, they offered me another piece of the sublime cheese and these amazing award-winning cheeses, he said. And for the whole day, every time they offered me a piece of cheese, I just wanted a piece of that cake. something very sweet in that for me that sense if you don't we, we come on a retreat and how wonderful how fortunate to have this situation and then of course there's human beings that we share it with um, particularly this human being the, the one that we share it most closely with ourselves and how our relationship with that isn't always comfortable isn't always easy for us This sense of wanting things to be other than as they are. Wanting ourselves to be other than as we are. Somehow wanting to be somewhere else. To get there. From here. What we see is that express itself in a, in a 
ongoing movement away. A pull or a push that takes us into a mind-created fantasy of hope or fear for something better or to avoid something worse than where we are. And just noticing what happens in that, this attempt to control our experience, this attempt to organize or to maintain a particular kind of experience, that in the meditation process it often happens much the same and yet the significant and so crucially important element is we start to see it. We see more clearly that, oh, that's what's going on. I'm trying to coordinate or coerce what's happening so much of the time to get it to fit a relatively limited idea of what I think will be fulfilling, enjoyable, or serve me in some way. And of course there is a value in cultivating what is wholesome and we do that here in many ways. But always important to, to sense, to notice the degree to which we're trying to get away from where we are or get to something else. The wholesome that can be discovered, that, that can be developed, that can be cultivated, the, the qualities of mindfulness, of steadiness, of calm, of open-heartedness, of wisdom, of patience, of generosity, they come out of our willingness to enter deeply into where we are, not out of an endeavor to somehow get away from here to somewhere better or more spiritual. And so we, we notice these pushes and pulls. We're invited to feel and to sense them just as we're paying attention to the body, to the breathing, to the experience of being here, to the experience of noticing that we're not here quite frequently and sometimes for considerable periods and occasionally departing with great enthusiasm, in fact, rather than regret or embarrassment. It's like, wow, yeah, sometimes I just want out of here. So we need to notice that there's this way in which we respond to experience that's conditioned by the way we experience it as pleasant or unpleasant. This is something that will be familiar to many of you. And yet always useful just to come back and to reflect on how we do this. The sort of the wish to move towards that which feels pleasurable. Recognizing that this doesn't always lead to what is wholesome. To what actually serves our well-being. And equally the wish to move away from what is unpleasant or uncomfortable. Understanding how this doesn't also serve our well-being likewise. There is of course a place and an appropriateness for those responses, those movements. But when they become a compulsion or an unconscious unchosen response that we are carried or compelled by, our life becomes bound by the forces of craving and aversion, of this desire for, to get, to have, to keep, to reproduce, or to get away from, to remove, to get rid of, and to prevent ever happening again. That which 
these arise in relationship to. And so we can in this distinguish the sense of this craving or trying to get hold of or keep or maintain, which in the, the Buddha's teaching he talks about it having a quality like thirst, a sense of kind of like really quite primal urge for something that feels essential to our survival, which of course, you know, the thirst for, for, for moisture, for water is essential. But to see that there's a difference between the movement towards what is wholesome and what is for our well-being and just the pull towards what feels good and feels comfortable. And that sense of associating with what is wholesome is of course an essential part of practice. And sometimes that feels lovely. And yet sometimes it also can feel challenging. And it's, it's important to understand also that, that that movement towards kind of sep or, or getting away from what's uncomfortable has its place too, that there's a, there's, a, there's a need sometimes to make a boundary or to make a separation from that which may be harmful, threatening or dangerous. And there's a sense of a protective quality that we sometimes need to access. It's actually, it's not just that my knee's sort of giving me some unpleasant sensations which I don't like. It's actually, that feels like enough. Or maybe it's more than enough. And there's actually a protective care that says, actually, I'll make a change in my posture. That's not coming out of an avoidance or an escape from the fact that I just don't like it, but a, a compassionate and wise sense of, actually, no, that's plenty. That's enough pressure. Or enough stretching with regard to that. So that then we might choose to stay with something for a while, but have permission to move when needed. Not out of aversion, but out of wisdom. And that sense again of just noticing as we, if we lean towards something. So oh, there's actually a pleasure sometimes in being really close with the breathing. And feeling the ripple of sensations and just leaning into that and just, oh, actually there's something wholesome in this and harmless in this. And then easily the tendency comes to sort of a tightening of trying to get hold of the breath. Trying to, grow, I've got it now, I'm here. And we notice something changes because we've tightened around it. And what was a, a wholesome leaning into something that had one quality of sweetness to it perhaps has become something else again. And, you know, with with food, we're probably, certainly, I can own to being very familiar with that. You know, it, it tastes good, I want more. I, I've sometimes related the very tragic story of uh, being served lasagna on retreat here at Gaia House on one occasion and being a, a real fan of lasagna spending the whole portion of lasagna that I was eating worrying about whether there'd be any left to have a second helping. And by the time I'd eaten it, I wasn't hungry anymore. I was stuffed. I'd taken quite a large portion in the first place, despite the sign that said moderation. And I didn't want any more. And I hadn't enjoyed what I had because I was worried if I'd get some more. Is that something that's familiar? That sense of where we see, oh, because it's fine to enjoy lasagna or whatever you might like to eat. 
so long as it's reasonably healthy and wholesome or if it's not then it's in moderation but then we get caught don't we and somehow trying to con- continue or replicate the experience this way in which we tighten and constrict and buy, attempt to bind ourselves to something in the hope that it'll give us you know the lasagna fantasy is then I'll be happy if I can get a second helping of this to catch our mind where we're saying that this is going to do it for me because how many things have we already had how much lasagna have I eaten how much cake has the Dalai Lama had bless him you know Um, and still we want more thinking that this bit's going to do it for me and it's slightly simpler sometimes with things like food and to say of course with that for some people food is a really challenging territory and I don't want to make light of that for some people it may be a place of real um, struggle and and unease and in quite deep and profound ways and and for some people that may be in relationship for food and other people it may be in relationship to other things and perhaps though I don't know not having actually spoken to everyone about this but many people I've spoken to, we, we tend to have our own places that we struggle. And so I don't want to pick up someone else's and be too light with it when it's not mine in that way. But to, to see these, these processes lead to a tightening, a contraction. And, and the Buddha talked about this as the language we translated in as attachment. And uh, the, the word the Buddha used was upadana. Beautiful word. I'd like to just unpack a little in a moment. But uh, first I just want to talk about attachment because attachment as we use it in Buddhist teaching and understanding needs to be distinguished from the language used in psychological um, understanding of attachment which is and particularly attachment theory and the very necessary connection that an infant human being makes with its primary caregiver in hopefully sufficiently optimal circumstances for that to happen and the challenges that arise when that's not possible or doesn't happen as fully and as well as optimal optimally and of course it doesn't happen perfectly for anybody but that sense of there is a real value and importance in what is spoken of as attachment of connection deep connection as an infant and actually it's still quite important well beyond being an infant into our life as uh, human beings and adults to be able to deeply connect but upadana which translated as attachment and I, I already express in the sense of a contracting a tightening because I notice it and I feel my body tightens when something of that's going on part of why it's really helpful to be embodying this practice to be doing it in a way in which we're in touch with our body in quite a whole in a full way is that it tells us often more quickly we can sense in our body what's happening before we see through what our mind might be generating because of course the mind the heart the body they're different aspects of a unitary or a unified system and wholeness they're not quite as absolutely separate as we might think or talk about them or our kind of modern western scientific paradigms suggests often the sort of the, the separateness of these and so this this word the way that it unpacks and again uh, I rely on friends and colleagues who are scholars of this not being a, a speaker of uh, the Buddha's 
or someone who can read the original texts in the Pali language. But Upadana translates, if you, you, many of you will know the word dana, generosity. It's the root of this word. Dana is the sense of, um, of giving, of sharing, of openness. That is a very beautiful quality in the heart and a real foundation for spiritual practice. And ah, so adana is a negative, negative um, sort of prefix. So adana, not dana, not generous, not open, not sharing in that sense. And up is an intensifier. So upadana is intensified non-generousness, non-openness, non-sharingness. And just as dana has the sense of openness, connectedness, and a sort of a sense of sharing, attachment, upadana has the opposite. And we notice it. When we tighten, when we get attached, what we also experience, and as a, a number of people just named in different ways in the, in the small group that I was, uh, I was uh, in this afternoon, the, the sense of separateness that comes with the way our mind and heart and body tighten around something. Maybe in a sense of irritation or in a sense of um, craving for, we find ourselves separated, disconnected from. And so this, this practice is asking us and inviting us to develop the capacity and this is actually what we're practicing, perhaps more so than what we think we're practicing. If we think we're practicing being mindful of our sensations while our body is sitting here breathing. We are doing that, of course. But in order to be able to do that, what we're at a more, I would say, fundamental level, we're practicing having to let go of the tendency to tighten and contract, to try and control manipulate, maintain, or reject certain experiences. And this sense of potential fulfillment or happiness or deeper well-being that we start to sense as we enter into and deepen in our practice is very much connected with and drawn out of the the softening of that tendency to tighten and become separate from, separated from, disconnected from that which has become somehow an object outside of ourself or outside of the intimacy of our experience, which is either the problem, I, we don't like it, or the solution, we do like it, to our condition. When in fact, experiences in themselves do not have the capacity to provide our lasting fulfillment nor in a way to be an obstacle to that either. And the real quality of our life, the real fulfillment for our hearts it seems to me is born of what we give not what we get from our existence, what we give to it. And so in meditation I find it useful to, and I speak in terms of kind of giving oneself to the practice. Because what we give to it is going to be the foundation of what comes back to us from it. What we demand of it will, 
we, we, when we make demands of things, it's like we try to put pressure upon our experience or pressure on other people or pressure on the world to be like this or to not be like that. But it doesn't work that way. Have you noticed? We want people to be different. It doesn't generally happen, I've found. Even with one person, you know, let alone with however many of them there are, of us there are, what it actually does is it puts pressure on us. It's a bit like if you push on the earth. Does the earth move very far? Hmm, not so much. But if you push on it firmly, actually your own body moves away from it. And so sometimes we can respond to these teachings and these practices in, in a way um, seeing that, oh, yes, that, that tightening, that craving, that, that doesn't work. That contraction, that pressure, that's not good. And we, we kind of start to sort of think, oh, well, I, I shouldn't have anything to do with all of that. That's all kind of the world. It's not very spiritual. It's definitely not fulfilling. Or if it is, it's just way too complicated and messy. And there's the sense sometimes of... of what we talk about or what we might hear about is sort of trying to become distant or detached. or But it doesn't really work that way either. One aspect of why that is so is because we care. We care so deeply about our life and the life we're in. We are involved in it. We can't pretend to not be so. And somehow that it doesn't matter. Because it does. Because that's part of what it means to be a human being. is that we care. And this kind of, this process of practice that we're learning how to meet our experience. I, I sometimes find it usefully illustrated by bringing two hands together. It's like we're seeking to be intimate, to be close with our experience as we practice. That's what the instructions are suggesting. Now, what habitually tends to happen is we, we tend to want to take hold of that, that urge, that tightening, and the tightening happens equally in craving and aversion. We contract, and it's like we put, somehow become entangled with our life. And with our experience on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, which we notice is, is actually painful, unfulfilling. Or we kind of think, oh, I've had enough of that, I'm out of here. And I'm trying to stay a safe distance, detached. Non-attachment is very different than detachment. Non-attachment invites and allows the possibility to be this close, to be intimate to actually be in touch with can be something quite, in fact, in a wholesome way, sensual, in that we are in touch, in touch with our sensory experience, the human organism. It's remarkably beautiful capacity to feel so deeply. And yet in that closeness, and in that intimacy, there is a freedom to move if needed.
and we can respond from that place of closeness. One of the things we sometimes need to respond to in meditation, because it's not just, oh, well, I'll stop trying, I can see, I understand, I've heard the teachings, we shouldn't be trying to control what's going on or manipulate what's going on. Well, I'll, I'll just stop bothering, I'll just let whatever happens, happens. And of course, that doesn't work either, does it? We probably just get up and make a cup of tea or fall asleep in the cushion and you know, ask someone to wake us at the end of the day, please, maybe. Um, is this process of engaging with what's going on to see what's possible without demanding a particular outcome. That's so much of what we do. So we turn towards this experience of being here. Okay, can I... Can I be present, awake, sensitive, in a, in a caring and kindly and yet also dedicated way? And so far as I can, to really honour that, and when I can't, to make space for that. And one of the things that I find, it's an interesting sort of exploration in this territory, is how we work with drowsiness and sleepiness. And, uh, you know, we come along to meditation. As I was saying earlier, we might be telling our friends about it and how, how tired we get in the afternoon. And, and they sort of went, how come you're tired? You know, even if you had a nap and still falling asleep in the meditation? You don't have to confess, but has that happened to anybody? I, I mean, it certainly happened to me. Um, not so far today, but um, still time. And how do we respond to that? It's like, at one level, acknowledging that sometimes drowsiness, sleepiness, is actually because we might be tired, depleted, even exhausted. And that for many of us, we have, for many quite understandable reasons, found ourselves living in a way in which what we feel we need to give out is nowhere near balanced by what we're able to take in. So between, in a way, expenditure and nourishment, there isn't a balance. And one of the effects of that is exhaustion. And in the context of the challenges of our, of our world at this time, that's quite understandable and, and perhaps amplified for some of us. And so how to respond to this? Well, one of the things that's really helpful is just to notice, oh wow, I'm really tired. Well, I'm feeling sleepy. And to ask the question, is there any reason why this might be so? Because if there is, it's good to just reflect on that. Oh, okay, so I didn't sleep for the last four nights. Hmm, yeah. Or didn't sleep well. Or was really stressed for the last two days, weeks, months, years, decades. Oh, okay, so we come here and someone says, you know, you don't have to go anywhere, you don't have to get anything. Ah, oh, thank you, Finally. And we might notice some waves of tiredness. They might go on for a little while. It sometimes can be the case that we need more rest. And that's okay. And it can sometimes be the case that, in fact, we're not tired. We're like, mm, not sure that there's any reason that it makes sense to me why I'm really tired. Still, I'd leave, suggest you leave some space for that possibility. Because we don't always know everything that's going on as to why we might be where we are. 
But sometimes we might notice that it's also a response to things arising that we're not really comfortable with. And we're not really sure we want to encounter. And one question we can sometimes ask when there's a lot of drowsiness, and it's an open question, not assuming there is an answer to this, but it's like, is there something which I'm not wanting to encounter here? Is there something? Not assuming that there is, but being open to that possibility, not thinking, can't figure out, I must be deluding myself. No, I'm not saying that. I hope that's clear. Sometimes that's not what's going on. But sometimes it is. And it's just interesting to notice, oh, okay, yeah, maybe there's some sorrow or some anxiety or some physical discomfort. Although it's actually quite hard to get drowsy when we're physically uncomfortable. But it can happen. And just noticing that, oh, okay, is there something that needs some care here? So there's a kind of reflection. And so it's also about bringing just a little curiosity in, interest. What's going on here? Rather than, oh, drowsiness, I don't like it. Or I shouldn't be having it. Or drowsiness, oh, I should just go and sleep. I'll, I'll, next opportunity, I'm going to lie down, fall asleep. So it's taking a little bit more of a nuanced process and relationship with that. And then to engage with that. Sometimes to sit up, to just check that the posture is upright. Maybe to open your eyes if they're closed. I notice that there's a process of drowsiness. Catch the eyes are probably closed for myself. I generally practice with my eyes closed, though it's there are options there. Um, and then the body starts to come heavy and sort of it's sort of like heading down towards the ground. That's what uh, sort of a lot of earth energy and uh, that sort of heaviness, density, downward moving. Mm. And that's why we want to get on the earth, on the ground, on the floor, on on a bed when we're, when we're sleepy. And just noticing what is it like to actually make the body consciously more upright, to open the space between the belly and the chest. So the, between the, more precisely, the, the pelvis and the sternum. That, that just, just closes otherwise. And just opening up and just taking maybe a fuller breath or two, opening the eyes. And uh, one of the things I find remarkably helpful for drowsiness is actually lifting up one's arm. So I just want to invite you to try this. And you can just begin by bringing your attention into your hands. I've already got ahead of myself, so we all have. What the heck? But just bring your arms up and just notice what it's like to hold them up in the air a little bit here. And just, just take a moment. I'd suggest your elbows want to be at least to the level of your shoulders. If you have some injury or limitation with your shoulders, of course, listen to your body. Always primary, listen to what's actually your experience. But for many, and it could even be there a bit further. And just notice what it's like to do this. It may not entirely be a coincidence that after about 30, 40 minutes of a Dharma talk, we start to get a little more drowsy. Um, but just to notice what happens. I feel the sensation, arms start, shoulders start to work a little bit. And you don't have to, but if you want to just stay with that for a few moments and feel what it's like as your shoulders have to start to work to keep your arms here, you can't really hurt yourself doing this. It's uh, never been reported to me. Again, unless you have some injury or um, pre-existing limitation with the shoulders. But holding them up actually brightens the mind. The effort of holding them up brightens the mind. 
least some of the time I've noticed that. But even if it doesn't, I can guarantee you that although anything can happen in meditation, there are no guarantees beyond if you hold your arms up in the air like this, you will not fall asleep. It's never been reported. And so maybe just bringing them down slowly and noticing what you notice as you do that just now. Does anyone notice anything that they could just simply say and you, you could just put up your hand and say it? You don't have to, but anyone notice anything? Yeah. Right, invigorated, yeah. Anyone else notice anything? Brighter, yeah. yeah. The neck and shoulders areas tend to tighten and contract for a number of reasons, including, and often that restricts the energy and the blood flow into the brain. And this actually, by working them, we can't tell them to relax. They don't listen to us. Have you noticed? You can't say, hey, you, that part of my body that's tight, just relax. But sometimes if you give it some gentle work, it gets tired. And then it says, okay, I'm going to relax. I notice my shoulders are generally a little bit lower after I do that. And often there's a little more brightness. It's not guaranteed. But uh, it might be something you want to explore and work with a little. And seeing here, oh, so we're seeing what happens. This isn't also is an illustration of how we work and practice this. Well, what happens if I do this? Is it useful? Rather than it's got to make me feel good or feel better or keep me awake. Because, of course, when I put my hands down, I might still fall asleep. The guarantee only works while they're up in the air. And that's only possible for a little while for most of us. So in this process, to, to really have a sense of doing it in a caring and friendly way, in a kindly way, that we're seeing what's possible, what may be developed here. And what is possible for us is, in fact, remarkable and beyond what we might imagine. As human beings, our potential is vast. And yet the way we access that is often not as we might have imagined, through somehow pushing or forcing. And yet it asks us to be here. It asks us to be here for this process. And whatever is happening in your experience, there is... It offers possibility. When things are steady or calm or feel a little easier, we can give a bit more emphasis to the settling, the steadying, the focusing, the gathering of the attention in the body, in the breathing, in the sense of immediacy and that kind of unifying or collecting that we talk about and we experience in meditation where the, the heart, mind and body start to come more into harmony. And this unification is the, the, the language that I like to use to talk about what is sometimes translated as concentration. And that, that word has this sort of association for many of us of, you know, teacher in the school saying, hey, kid, concentrate. Like, don't think about nice things, think about algebra. You know, and it's like, it doesn't work for most of us, except it scares us, and so we try. And the other element I have associated with concentrate, it's like, when you extract all the moisture from something and tomato concentrate and it's concentrated 
but it doesn't have a lot of moisture. That's actually quite unpleasant until you add the moisture back. We need moisture in this process. So the sense of gathering without tightening and collecting without squeezing to try and hold on to this breathing body, this immediate experience. And that's more possible, or it seems to be more available that we see that trajectory deepening and developing in ways that we can recognize when we're not being challenged by too many difficult things, when the body's more at ease, when the mind is more calm, when the heart's not feeling under pressure. But of course that's not what's happening all the time and for some of us it might feel like it's hardly like that at all. And yet that's equally as valuable because when our body's uncomfortable, when our heart is encountering that which is not easy, or when our mind is agitated or restless, the noticing, the turning towards and the opening to this experience is actually part of the process of our heart's capacity being grown, being developed, opening to this too. So it offers us something equally as important and valuable. And when the conditions support the one, that trajectory is what's perhaps developing more obviously. And when the conditions are more the other, when it's more challenging or difficult or uncomfortable sometimes, oh, here's an opportunity for that. And in that, then really everything is of value here. All of our experience offers us opportunity and to, to value it in that way, to see it in that way. This practice asks us ultimately to include everything. Although, as we've said in the beginning, we're focusing in a particular way to support a gathering and a landing with this body, this breathing, simplicity of taking one step at a time or standing still. And this process of, of opening, of deepening, of settling, of gathering. And the, the ripening wakefulness. All of this is really born of each other. And any part of it or any aspect of it we're cultivating is worthy of our of our practice. So thank you for your practice. Thank you for being here in the way that you are. Because what we are engaged in here is, as I said, not so common and yet so important, it seems to me for each of our well-being and for our world. So I'd just like to finish with a poem by Rio Khan, one of my, a Zen monk and uh, a hermit and poet who lived in the, uh, I think it was now, I'm actually finding my mind blanking, but it was, I think it was the 18th century, but it may have been the 17th, or thereabouts. Um, and he writes, he's one of my favorite sort of Dharma characters, and sort of, he writes in one of his poems, the rain has ended, the storm has passed, 
and the sky is clear again. When all things in your heart are pure, all things in your world are pure. Let go of this fleeting world. Abandon your struggle with yourself. Then the moon and the flowers will guide you along the way. Let's just take a few moments quietly together. May our practice here together be for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings and all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.